to Shot Reverse Shot. I'm Matt Risby. Good evening. And joining me, as always, via the miracle of satellite technology, he's out to prove he's got nothing to prove. It's Ed Davis. How the devil are you, sir? I'm good, thank you. I'm going to say that that tagline is from Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Oh, that is a decent guess, but it's actually from Napoleon Dynamite. Ah, fuck. Yeah. That one is a very... Again, like last week, that one is very, very good for that particular film. Mm. Uh, that that film that I haven't seen in a long time, and which I assume I will hate now. Mm, yeah, I, I kind of wonder that, because uh, I saw it at the pictures, and I really enjoyed that film, and kind of had a vote for Pedro t-shirt, obviously, um, and then I saw it again on DVD, and I enjoyed it, but that was maybe kind of five, six years ago. And, you know, I wonder if there's enough there, or whether it's it's gone kind of beyond now to the point where it's uh, a little kind of uh, quotable keyring thing that you press and quotes come out. Yeah, I caught a repeat of the Saturday Night Live episode that John Heeder hosted around that time, and it was a very curious cultural artefact in the fact, in the sense that so much of it was Napoleon Dynamite-based. Mm. And I was watching it with my dad who had never ever seen napoleon dynamite and it was baffling to him he had <laughs> no idea what the hell anything in it was gonna uh, be about and, and saturday night live is not really you know that's not a show that really is meant to be rewatched. <laughs> it's meant to be seen live or the week that it airs because that's when all the jokes will make sense mm. but that one feels particularly like you know it's not like when they did the parody of there will be blood that parody still works now that film has kind of lingered in the culture in a way that you know uh, napoleon dynamite did for literally like the year 2004 and a bit of 2005 mm. and john he just kind of disappeared didn't he? he didn't he didn't really kind of do anything else i remember him in a few little bits but nothing yeah, that... it was in blades of glory that mm. was kind of his big uh attempt at superstardom but or kind of a, a crossover hit, but other than that, he's just become kind of a jobbing character actor who just shows up in things, usually in things where they have him kind of play up his uh, his uh, his Napoleon Dynamite connections. Mm, yeah, I think they just bring him in to dance the Jamiroquai kind of every other film because he's the only man who can make uh, Jamiroquai palatable. Yeah, pretty much uh, him and uh, Godzilla, <laughs> Godzilla destroying a city, just kind of makes it all a little better because you think, oh, this film's awful. I guess Jamiroquai's not so bad now. Mm, yeah, I guess Jamiroquai's not so bad now is a phrase that will live on uh, way past this show's lifetime. Um, <laughs> but yeah, anyway, that weird tangent and kind of Godzilla, Jamiroquai, Napoleon Dynamite. Um, let's get into some news because there's been a lot happening this week. principal thing that's been happening this week is uh, the Batman Superman film uh, is out. And um, obviously once the embargo lifted, all the reviews came out and the reviews were pretty bad. Uh, I mean, we kind of expected them to be bad, but they were pretty scathing and kind of overwhelmingly negative. Now, obviously anyone who's kept an eye on the box office figures this weekend 
uh, we'll see that it has done roaring business and, uh, you know, kind of has shown itself to be fairly critic proof, which is no surprise to anyone. But the reason that we're talking about this is uh, it's been one of those things where like people who have given it bad reviews have been kind of openly attacked online, have been said they're shilling for Marvel and it's part of some kind of big conspiracy. And it just brings into like contrast just once again, like since when have positive or negative reviews mattered to people like i really do not understand how you can like something and see it gets a bad review and instead of just being like ah okay that person didn't dig it i like this it's probably i'm gonna or even if you haven't seen it i'm gonna like this because this is my cup of tea how is that how does one affect the other like (laughs) i really don't get it yeah i think I don't want to cast aspersions on people, but I think it maybe speaks to certain insecurity mm-hmm. on the fact that certainly, I mean, this happens obviously with geek comic booky stuff more than it does for anything else. You know, when uh, To the Wonder got bad reviews, you didn't see kind of uh, Terence Malick fanboys doxing people. <laughs> no, you know, I mean it would have been brilliant if they did because if you've got <laughs> if you've got the power to dox a critic, you could probably find out where Terence Malick lives and see what he looks like. I just imagine that doxing a cricket uh, a critic over a Malick film would just involve tweeting kind of abstract kind of nonsense at them for days on end mm. and just trying to act like it's really profound, uh, as as it happens in To the Wonder, a film I don't care for, mm. uh, but. Yeah, it's it's. I think it does speak to a level of insecurity because people who like these kind of comic book films, they were often in a lot of cases quite marginalised for a very long time because it's only very in the very recent past that comic book culture has become and nerd culture has become as mainstream as it has. So they te- so their attitude towards all this stuff from when it was this kind of niche kind of thing that they loved and which gave them a sense of identity now that it's kind of out there that they have the same level of protectiveness against it that they had when they were like bullied for wearing a superman t-shirt at school or whatever Mm. Uh, that they do now that critics are saying yeah this film is, is like terrible and so they lash out in a kind of a big way because they feel in some way threatened by this as opposed to what I think is a normal thing to say, which is, ah, it doesn't matter. You know, mm. they didn't like it. I did. It's fine. You know, that's, I think, a mature and uh, correct and safe way for people to react is if people say, we don't like this. You just say, ah, well, I did. Mm. You know, that's that's the way you should do it. Uh, as opposed to, you know, just kind of going on Facebook and writing long screeds saying, like you say, saying that oh, they're, they, the, the critics went in expecting to hate it. They all just like Marvel. Um, and speaking of which, I personally feel really affronted that I've been hating Man of Steel for free for years when apparently <laughs> I could have been getting all that sweet Marvel money. Yeah, yeah, because Marvel probably need a lot of people to dislike DC films because it really does uh, completely devalue it as a cultural artefact. Yeah, and because the only way for their films to be successful is if they have no competition, because mm. only one studio's films can ever be successful. That's why that's why Warner Brothers are the only film studio there is, mm. and all the others went out of business 30 years ago. Mm, absolutely. But the, the kind of second point to this whole Batman-Superman business is obviously the press 
tour has been kind of going on as the embargo lifts and all the reviews come out. So obviously the people involved are going to be asked about the negative reviews. And they busted out the the defense of the film wasn't made for critics. Uh, I think some of the stars and the director have all said that, which is what people normally say when people don't like their films. And kind of begs the question as to that's not a defense. Stop saying that. Yeah, that is code for, well, we know it's not good. <laughs> yeah. So why why do you expect us to why did you expect it to be good? Mm. Uh, yeah, it's it's a ridiculous tack to take, I think, to say oh we didn't make this for critics. It's like, well then, who did you make it for? You know, you say oh we wanted to make it for fans, but critics are fans as well. You know, often that's the reason why they're critics is they love film, mm. and a lot of them, you know, certainly, you know, a lot of the people who criticize the film they would get things like saying oh you've probably never read a comic book in your life and then you get people like matt singer for a screen crush who is like a lifelong comic book fan who's obsessed with all of this stuff mm-hmm. or uh glenn weldon for uh npr who's like written books on superman and batman you know who you know you couldn't accuse them of not being up on their stuff and they both have uh, been pretty sniffy about the film so to say that there is a a dichotomy and a clear divide saying oh critics on this side fans on this side is is ridiculous and just a way of trying to kind of fob off the fact that you've released a film it's probably not very good or at the very least it has not been received well by critics and also by a lot of people who have watched it who aren't critics Mm -hmm. you know the response in general like it got a b cinema score which is um the cinema score in general is like an incredibly terrible thing it's there's no way to judge whether or not it applies to a film being good and it doesn't really necessarily reflect the quality of the film but b for like a big blockbuster film is essentially saying that a huge swathe of the audience really didn't like it after watching it Mm. Uh, and possibly suggests that even though it opened 170 million dollars it could like completely crap out and earn less than 350 by the time it's done Mm -hmm. Um, it probably will do a little better than that but it's uh, it's interesting to kind of see them say, "Oh, we made it. We didn't make it for fans." And then, like, if you actually dig into the responses from a lot of fans, the response has been, at the very least, kind of fifty-fifty split between people who like it and people who hate it. But I think it's probably more on the hate than like side. Mm, mm, absolutely. In TV news, it's been announced this week that the HBO show Togetherness. Uh, has been cancelled for those of you who haven't seen Togetherness. It's the uh, Duplass brothers who were kind of the vanguard of that mumblecore, uh, loathe the phrase, but kind of it's helpful, cinema movement. Um, and they kind of uh, crossed over to television in kind of various projects of their own kind of devising. Um, did kind of The League and, and Transparent, uh, Jay Duplass was involved in. But they did a, sh- a really great show on HBO called uh, Togetherness, um, which has had, uh, I've seen most of the first season, uh, the second season is finished and is very well regarded, but unfortunately it finds itself on the scrap heap. Yeah, it's a shame because, like you say, it's a, it's a good show. It's got a great cast, the central four of Mark Duplass, Stephen Zissis, Amanda Peet, and particularly Melanie Linsky, mm-hmm. who is a fantastic actress who doesn't really get enough work or praise for how great she is. Uh, but, you know, it's a great, a great foursome and the, the way in which that show explores their lives and their frustrations is you know really keenly observed it's often very funny but it's also quite dramatic and i think it's one of the most fully realized projects the duplass brothers have ever made because i think their films while often really really good they can be a little raggedy and a little feel feel like they are struggling to contain their 
ideas and i think television felt like a natural medium medium for them to explore their kind of filmmaking and storytelling mm, yeah, yeah their work can be a bit sketchy at times um it's nice to see them find a foothold somewhere but it's uh, equally a shame uh, to see it go uh it felt just on a side point there melanie linsky it's interesting uh, she is a standout on that show and she is a great actress. Uh, her episode of WTF is excellent. I'd recommend anyone listen mm. to that. Um, it's really fun, really revealing. And obviously Heavenly Creatures, if you haven't kind of uh, seen that film, please do so. Uh, in weird news this week, uh, Paul McCartney has joined the uh, cast of Pirates of the Caribbean 5 or 6, is yep. it? Uh, five? 5. Right, wow. Not really sure what that's about. Yeah, I can only assume that they're trying to work through all of the surviving kind of uh, British invasion bands, and we can look forward to Ray Davis in part six. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and then uh, Jerry Marsden from the Pacemakers in the straight-to-video straight <laughs> sequel of Seven. Uh, that's kind of the news this week, but we do have a little bit of an update on uh, the All Saints movie, um, <laughs> which uh, regular <laughs> listeners will know uh, that we I half-remembered two episodes ago, and Ed was stunned to find out was actually a real thing. And uh, we've been trying to track the, show, the the film down. It's been quite hard to find. But lo and behold, uh, I received a parcel to my work, a mystery parcel uh, addressed to me uh, this week. Uh, and a friend of the show, Owen Priestley, uh, had listened and kind of uh, heard our pleas to see this film, uh, found it on Amazon and had it sent to me. Uh, and uh, we're going to watch it this week and report back to you guys uh, and the seven people that we know for sure have seen the film and <laughs> kind of let you know what's going on there uh, because I feel a little bit Ed like we've gone down a road and it's too late to turn back yeah this is something that really needs to happen at this point I think it's the only way that anyone's going to get any closure I need to see if this is a real thing I need to find out if it's truly cursed and that Dave Stewart is going to try and murder me mm -hmm. or Shaznay we don't know who's really responsible for all of them killings but yeah I definitely feel at this point that this is something that truly needs to happen for anyone to feel to get any satisfaction from this. Yeah, we need and it will end with us watching what sounds like a not very good film. Yeah, we need closure big time. The last bit of news this week, uh, which is a real bummer, is that Gary Shandling passed away very suddenly this week. Someone whose work that anyone who's familiar with any kind of modern comedy will be familiar with it, like because it's just been so influential, his approach, and especially coming off the back of the Larry Sanders show. You can see it in stuff like Kirby Enthusiasm, The Office, uh, Arrested Development, everything owes a debt to that show. And it's just a kind of a hugely shocking thing to happen this week. And he was such a massive figure that the kind of the outpouring of grief and and kind of just the respect that he's being shown everywhere of just how influential he is has been been quite staggering really. Yeah, it's it's very interesting to see how much outpouring there has been because in some respects he could be considered something of a cult figure because obviously his two TV shows, It's Gary Shandling's Show and The Larry Sanders Show, both aired on cable, premium cable in the 80s and 90s and so weren't seen by huge numbers of people even though they were very well regarded and his kind of acting career in general has been fairly limited i think he's only got like 24 credits on imdb and some of them include him playing himself mm -hmm. so he's not exactly someone who was that prolific but when you dig into the influence that he had in that he mentored a lot of young comedians he was a big influence on judd apatow who's basically the king of comedy at this point in american uh, in american kind of film comedy he was a big influence to him so much so that 
he paid direct tribute to him in Freaks of Freaks and Geeks in a very lovely scene in which the character of Bill watches him perform on the Tonight Show, uh, essentially just recreating a scene from his own life of as kind of like a, a kid finding some great comfort and connection in watching this guy be incredibly funny on television uh, and then getting the extreme honour of getting to work with him on The Larry Sanders Show and that was kind of one of his first big breaks. Uh, and, you know, all these stories that have come out of how he would, whenever he was in town in LA, he would hold pickup basketball games and invite comedians around where they would play and then he would talk and offer advice to people and he just, all of the people like talking about him and his work just make him sound like he was an incredibly funny, creative guy who did amazing work. You know, I would say the Larry Sanders show stands up there with the absolute great works of American TV in general, but also that he just seemed like a really kind of lovely gentleman as well. Mm. And Larry Sanders is one of those odd things that, I mean, I recognise it as a fan of kind of modern TV comedy to be hugely influential, but it's not a show that I saw a great deal of because it was uh, very much like Seinfeld on BBC, on British TV. It was kind of like buried in graveyard shifts on BBC Two, uh, kind of like two in the morning, and it would be something that I'd catch occasionally, and I'd be like, oh, why is David Duchovny doing that? That's terrible. Um, and like, what is this show? I kind of see it, and I think it was really funny, but there was kind of, back then, there was no real way to kind of get on top of it. So it was something that I'd only ever seen a handful of episodes of but you've seen a lot more of it and uh like where where can people see it and um what's the the kind of best place to start well it's available on dvd there's like a full season series box set which i would highly recommend because that's like it's an amazing show and it is really great uh there's also if you want to dip in there's a, a best of called the best of larry sanders which i think is like 10 episodes and so that's kind of like a nice sampler uh, and it's going to be added back to HBO Go and HBO Now in the near future. Mm-hmm. It was not available on there for a while because HBO didn't have don't have the rights to a lot of their early shows. They were um, be- because they didn't really think that there would be much in the way of home media for it. So mm. that'll be available now. If anyone wants to see kind of two episodes that I would recommend as really good kind of starting points, there's one from season one called Out of the Loop, which is often cited as kind of one of the early highlights in which Larry, who is uh, the, the, the premise of the Larry Sanders show for people who don't know is it's about the behind the scenes working of a late night talk show hosted by Gary Shandling uh, as the character of Larry Sanders assisted by his side, uh, his sidekick Hank played by Jeffrey Tambor in what would be a career defining role if he hadn't had like three or four career defining roles since then. <laughs> uh, but that was like his first career defining role um, as his kind of like, desperately sad and uh obsequious sidekick and also his producer arty played by rip torn in uh one of the best kind of comic performances you will ever see from him other than obviously his time on 30 rock um but in the episode out of the loop it's where he where larry starts to suspect that he is being too distant and decides he's going to get directly involved in the lives of the people who work on his show and quickly comes to regret that decision because he realized he liked not being involved in people's lives and it becomes all a bit overwhelming for him um but also bumps up against his constant desire to be liked which is kind of the running theme of the whole show was his his desire to be loved and also his complete inability to kind of relate to other people because he was so neurotic Uh, and the other show episode is an episode from season five called everybody loves larry which is one in which 
he comes to suspect that David Duchovny has a sexual attraction to him, mm. uh, which is one of the kind of the better uh, running jokes on the show, uh, which is kind of one of the great examples of an actor coming into the show, playing themselves and just really just kind of committing to a strange idea and really pursuing it in a way that is incredibly funny, incredibly progressive for the time, because it was the kind of the 90s, which was not the most kind of uh, gay-friendly of eras in culture and particularly American television. Uh, and it's just like a hugely funny episode. But you really can't go wrong with uh, with that show. It's pretty much great from start to finish. Mm, yeah, and like a show that we've liked recently, Master of None, you know, takes kind of a pretty huge lead from that. Uh, the Duchovny thing is something that I was aware of. That's pretty much all the episodes I saw involved him in some capacity, mm. um, various kind of sleazy degrees. <laughs> um, but yeah, the the whole Colin Salmon uh, thing on in Master of None is is pretty much a direct lift from from that. Um, so yeah, it's kind of echoes can be felt um, pretty much uh, everywhere these days. It's Easter weekend, uh, everybody. Uh, so obviously we're celebrating the uh, resurrection of Jesus. Um, which uh, we talk about reboots quite a lot. It's probably, <laughs> probably the greatest reboot there ever was. So we thought we'd talk about religion this week. I'm kind of surprised we haven't got into that before, Ed. Yeah, it's a, obviously a very big and uh, rich vein to tap, but I feel like it's it's so big that it's kind of hard to decide where to start. But I think the the occasion of Easter feels like and feels like uh, a good time for us to finally leap in and uh, try and grapple with let's solve this whole religion thing yeah yeah and it's, it's fortunate that this religious festival coincides with a kind of a chocolate festival as well which is pretty cool that's a uh, kind of a lost leader for religion it's yeah, like you lead yeah. people in with the chocolate and then you hope that they stay for the, the psalms <laughs> yeah stay for the come for the chocolate stay for the weird story of a man who sent his son to a distant planet to be tortured and killed yeah so you'd remember in the future why don't we start with uh directors directors who kind of uh they're one of their principal preoccupations is uh religion and uh, they're kind of the one that kind of jumps to mind instantly is martin scorsese a, f- a mm-hmm. filmmaker who uh was training for the seminary i believe and uh, pretty much all of his films, especially his early ones, kind of deal with uh, issues of sin and redemption and uh, all that kind of heavy, heavy, heavy Catholic stuff. Yeah, he was obviously someone who was very steeped in that sort of thing. And even though there's only kind of a couple of his films where it feels like it's kind of really direct, obviously his first feature was Who's That Knocking at My Door, which is very much about a young catholic italian american not dissimilar to scorsese himself kind of dealing with his conflicting feelings around sex and love when it comes to his relationship with a young woman who had had an abortion and how he feels about that uh and i would really recommend people look up uh roger ebert's uh article on who's that knocking on my door which kind of delves into his own kind of feelings about catholicism and how he kind of related to that but I think you can also see, I think that that's something that permeates so much of his work, sort of the ideas of damnation and hell. You know, I think Taxi Driver would probably be a radically different film if it hadn't been made by someone who, at least at some point in his life, believed in the kind of actual existence of a genuine and real hell. Mm-hmm. Because he transposes it to the streets of New York. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
and um, it's something that like he continued to explore uh, all through his career um, and kind of got to the point where um, something like Last Temptation of Christ or even something like Kundun, which is uh, perhaps outside the realm of his usual kind of Catholic comfort zone, where there were kind of he's you know and his latest film that comes out I think it's later this year or it's early next year The Silence is it called about Jesuit priests? Yep. Um, he is someone who a studio would be pretty comfortable giving uh, money to to do a kind of a big religious film, even though he's not going to take a conventional approach to it. Yeah, I think Last Temptation of Christ is a really fascinating film because it's a film made by someone who i mean i I don't want to say for certain about what his religious beliefs are but he definitely strikes me as a lapsed catholic as someone who uh believes or believed at some point and maybe still holds some residual things with it i think that what makes the last temptation of christ such an amazing work and one of the, the the genuinely great films about the life of jesus is that it's made by someone who I think has doubts and as such doesn't just uh, doesn't make Jesus perfect or unknowable. He tries to genuinely find the humanity in someone who uh, lived, you know, if he existed, lived on earth for 33 years and then died uh, and tries to, you know, genuinely explore the humanity of a figure who, you know, the entire religion based around him kind of tries to dehumanize a lot. Mm. I would think you're probably right to assume that Martin Scorsese is a lapsed Catholic uh, for the reasons of cocaine and lots (laughs) lots and lots and lots of cocaine. Uh, Well, you know, the Bible's open to interpretation. I'm pretty sure if you read it the right way um, and use it to kind of snort coke off of, (laughs) you can find any justification. Yeah, what other directors have we got that kind of... uh, uh, have a severe kind of religious bent to their their work. I mean, people like Fellini, I guess. Yeah, Fellini. I think that that plays through a lot in his work. That's someone who kind of grew up in Italy when it was incredibly Catholic. Obviously, it's still very Catholic now, but it, it definitely feels like uh, it was probably much like Ireland, probably much more Catholic back in the past than it is now. I think that someone who I always think of as a uh, as someone who works uh with religion but maybe was perhaps not that religious himself would be ingmar bergman who i think spent his entire life and his entire life's work in a lot of ways uh questioning the existence of god which is i think is is in some way a religious stance to take because you're essentially saying there is this belief system i have incredible skepticism about it i'm going to explore what it means for God not to exist through the stories of my characters. Mm. Uh, And I think that even if he did not believe in God, uh, the fact that he made that question so central to so many of his works, you know, stuff like the silence and winter light and things like that, it clearly, it it was kind of a huge preoccupation of his, uh, which uh, Woody Allen inherited to an extent as well, because obviously that's a, big thing that he returns to in his work is the existence of God and, and philosophy as it relates to him coming from a kind of a Jewish perspective. Mm. It's interesting you mentioned Woody Allen is someone I kind of thought about in, in, in kind of putting together notes for this episode where he is someone who I kind of instantly thought of, but then I thought, actually, does he make films about Judaism or does he make films about Jewishness? Because those two are entirely different things. Yeah, I think that's a, that is an interesting uh 
distinction to make because obviously there's religious Jewishness and, and cultural Jewishness uh, and he definitely seems to fall more onto the cultural side because again he was someone who you know based on many of his jokes doesn't believe in God uh, and at this point but he is someone who grew up in a cult in that cultural milieu where he would have believed that it in at some point so I think there are elements of his work where he is kind of you know questioning and searching but the older he got the less convinced he got and so and that's when you start to see him using religion more as a foil for his for his jokes mm. to kind of make fun of the the rigors and the uh the rituals of the the jewish faith uh, as opposed to necessarily being that kind of probing in it in the way that kind of bergman just kind of stared into the into the abyss for the entirety of his life mm. uh, woody allen just kind of made gags about the abyss Mm. Uh, the Coen brothers have been directed I mean we talked about them in, in depth uh, kind of a couple of weeks ago one thing we didn't really touch on is uh, their attitude to religion which is uh, kind of it's always kind of there but you know, apart from maybe like a serious man it's never been kind of like full on yeah a serious man is kind of the most direct one and I think that maybe comes from their period of researching for their never made uh, adaptation of the Yiddish policeman's union mm-hmm. uh, not the Yiddish policeman's ball as I always want to say <laughs> um, uh, Chevy Chase really funny in that yeah um, they I think definitely explore it fully their their own feelings about you know their their Jewish background uh, growing up in the Midwest there but I think you can see in something like Barton think there is a very uh, you know that there there is a religious reading of that that uh, Barton think is in is in purgatory or hell uh, as backed up by the fact that the hotel he stays in bursts into flames at the end <laughs> um, uh, and you know they have figures there's often a figure in a lot of their works both dramatic and comedic of a personification of evil uh, you see it in No Country for Old Men, which obviously is not based on their original work, but I think the character of Anton Chigurh is probably one of the things that really drew them to it mm. because you can see parallels to him in uh, in the, the John Goodman character in Barton Fink, and you can also see it in the, uh, the, the Hell Rider character from Raising Arizona, mm. who is kind of this figure that emerges from the dream world and the ether in order to track down... Nicolas Cage and, and maybe some personification of his own personality um, you know I think their comfort with characters who kind of come from an uncertain place and a mystical place is is perhaps the, the most full uh, embodiment of their approach to religion but also I think you can see they enjoy kind of poking fun at religion in general as uh, evidenced by the whole running bit in the Big Lebowski about uh, Walter not wanting to do stuff on Shabbat. <laughs> yeah, and he's not even Jewish. Is his wife is, <laughs> and you know it's yeah, yeah. His yeah, ex-wife's it's, religion. Yeah, and he's still looking after her dog, uh, which seems to be the only benefit to her <laughs> for him converting. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting, kind of going off the Coen Brothers. Also, we kind of did the Coen Brothers episode uh, a couple weeks ago because of uh, Hail Caesar. Um, and uh, the Hail Caesar is about a biblical epic being shot and um, also tying it in with Batman Superman kind of being out this week and people talking about it. It kind of noted in our discussions before this uh, that 
biblical epics used to be the superhero movies of their day and they were huge and the amount of money that was thrown at them was kind of a borderline obscene and yeah it's kind of odd that it's just not a genre of film that's made anymore yeah one of the things that i think was interesting in researching this and also something that i think has been pointed out by karina longworth on you must remember this is that for a long time, the biblical ethic was the only way that you could get sex and violence into a cinema mm-hmm. because the you know Catholic League of Decency and the Hayes Code and things like that put very strong restrictions on what you could have. But if you said, well, the Bible says these people were being gored with spears, then mm. you could get around it. And I think that was a that was kind of a big part of it is that all these filmmakers who wanted to make stories that had kind of violence and sex in it the easiest way was to just find some story from the Bible and adapt it. Um, and I think that with the end of the production code, you know, that they had other avenues in which to explore that stuff is that you could do more stuff and you didn't have to kind of hide it amongst kind of all the, the, the sandals and the swords and the scripture. But I think also one of the things about it that was why it became so huge in the fifties and sixties is it became the best kind of uh, delivery system for huge scale uh, storytelling that you couldn't get on television. Mm. And it was very easy to to tell these big stories in big, bold strokes about good and evil uh, that could be kind of very lavish and have incredible production values that could lure people away from just watching stuff at home. Mm. And you could squeeze an incredible amount of star power into it by, yes. you know, just having people come in and do an afternoon's work as a centurion or something and... Uh, you know, get the name on the poster. Yeah, and I think it's interesting to look at the, the the extent to which some of those films were massive, like the Ten Commandments, the Cecil B. DeMille film, the second time he made it in the 50s, is still one of the ten most successful films of all time in the US, adjusted for inflation. Mm. You know, it was of a, you know, of a Titanic, a Force Awakens style hit in its day. And that really, in the way that always happens with Hollywood, mm. everyone just kind of jumped on the bandwagon and tried to think of their own Bible story that they could do. And obviously everyone could do, anyone could do a Bible story because no one owns the copyright. Um, the Pope should really get on that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he could be getting some serious residuals. <laughs> uh, but, you know, it was something that a lot of people could just, they all just started making these things and then towards the end of the decade... The films, particularly, I think the two that really flopped were King of Kings and The Greatest Story I've Ever Told. They both lost a huge amount of money, and then they, people started looking elsewhere for, like, you know, lavish musicals and things like that. That's when you start to see musicals and war epics kind of come along. But you can definitely see there uh, the commercial viability of uh, of the the biblical epics was more important than uh, you know Hollywood suddenly deciding. They were going to become evangelical and try and spread the gospel to the masses. Mm. Do you think that the biblical epic went out of fashion uh, through kind of various societal changes, or like you say, there's other avenues with which to see uh, the stuff that the biblical epic offered? Uh, or do you think something like Life of Brian uh, basically just put a pin in that? I read recently that uh, the reason that the the modern bonds. Uh, the Daniel Craig ones are so kind of uh, serious and less kind of jokey. It's purely on the basis that Austin Powers ruined it uh, mm-hmm. for them. Uh, do you think there's something in the the Life of Brian thing that kind of just 
punctured the pomposity of it all. Uh, I think there is that is probably the reason why there was never a revival. But I think mm. the genre was pretty much dead by the time that they got round to parodying it. But I, I do feel like people's familiarity with the kind of uh, the the tropes and the cliches of the genre was why that film worked so well. Uh, in addition to the fact that it's just really really funny. But um, I, it's interesting you say that about the Austin Powers thing because I read a review of uh, I Saw the Light, the film about uh, Hank Williams. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Which which um, was partly saying why the film wasn't very good, but partly it was saying it was arguing that uh, Walk Hard had done more to destroy the musical biopic genre than people realised. Because it did, it, it like the the Austin Powers films, it did such a good job of pointing out all the ridiculous things that these biopics do mm. that now filmmakers have to go out of their way to make things like Get On Up and Love and Mercy, where they just like have to try and do something that's actually interesting and new, as opposed to just having all of the kind of the cliches roll one after the other. Uh, and I was, I thought it was interesting to think that there are examples in history of comedies that are just so perfect, even if they're not successful, they're so perfect that piercing a genre that no one would ever kind of dare to do that thing again and i think walk hard life of brian and austin powers definitely seem to fall into that category mm. i'm really surprised by that uh, i saw the light film because when it was announced you kind of start to think that's going to be an oscar contender i mean tom hiddleston hank williams a kind of a prestige film but that has really really gone down badly mm. yeah i think it's it's just one of those things where as soon as it got pushed back, everyone just thought, yeah, the film's probably not much good. They've sat down, they've watched it, and they've said, we cannot risk the embarrassment of putting this out in award season and having it be ignored, so we'll put it out in February or March and so that we can just kind of quietly let it die. Mm, yeah, yeah. Well, speaking of award season, and uh, it, we've just kind of come out the back end of it, uh, Spotlight won the Best Picture Oscar uh, this year round uh, and it was kind of very critical of the the Catholic Church and their kind of approach to the, the child abuse scandal but it's kind of part of a run of films that have been uh, hugely uh, critical of, of that kind of thing stuff like um, Deliver Us From Evil, Calvary, Philomena, the Magdalene Sisters I mean there's quite a lot uh, of those things that kind of point out uh, the failings of the Catholic Church it's to the point where the Catholic Church has kind of become the whipping boy of of kind of uh, these kind of stories, well, they they did horrible things. So oh it's, yeah, it's oh. it's warranted. Uh, but yeah, I think it's it's interesting that it's happening now, mm. uh, and I wonder why it is. I do I do wonder if the actual uh, journalism that drove Spotlight is the thing that made it happen because because people knew that the Catholic Church was doing horrible things for generations. Like the, the, the fact that people were being sexually abused is known about because there were survivors who were saying it was happening. But I do think it feel as if the success of the Boston Globe's investigation into it basically made it a part of popular culture to, to say that, you know, Catholic priests kind of touched children, you know, mm. and, and sexually abused children. And now it's reached a point where I think a whole generation of people grow, have grown up thinking, yeah, that's a thing that absolutely did happen and, and just have taking it as a granted as part of the fabric of what the Catholic Church is. And so now people feel safe in doing a film like Philomena, which is like 
you know, it's kind of a cozy film in some ways. You know, mm. it's you know, it's it's an Oscar contender. It's got Judy Dench in it. Wait, is it Judy Dench? Um, I'm gonna say it's Judy Waters. It's one of them. Yeah, it's it's one of the five older British ladies who are in those sort of films. But you know, it's the sort of film that you know, at the showroom we have a thing called Early Doors, where you know, kind of the old over fifty fives would come and get a tea and a cake mm. and watch a film for five pounds or whatever it was. And it's exactly the sort of film that could do that. But you know, you think like. 10, 15 years ago, there's no way that you would get a film that is kind of very kind of broadly commercial directly taking on the Catholic Church. It's, it's, I think it does speak to the way in which the invincibility of the church has been completely destroyed and eroded in the last decade that now you can get films that are in wildly different genres, wildly different tones. You know, Calvary and Philomena could not be more different films, but they do both kind of tackle that similar subjects in uh in uh, interesting in different ways and the fact that they can both exist and both came out within like a year of each other probably speaks to the fact that people are now feel as if they can really grapple with that subject matter mm. and kind of broadening the, the kind of christian spectrum with the kind of the lack of positivity and the in you know the, the depictions of the catholic church to kind of go the other way the kind of protestantism is that a word we'll say it is uh, or the kind of like uh, evangelical christian mm. um side of things they really don't get much of a anything else but a short shrift really do they and they're either kind of depicted as kind of crazies or kind of uh fundamental nutters yeah i mean that is it's kind of become a signifier for a lot of those kind of films for any film in which you see someone who is an evangelical, they are going to turn out to either be crazy or they're going to be a hypocrite. And I think the kind of example that leaps to mind would be Marsh Gay Harden in the mist Mm. where she, because of the, the people being trapped by this mysterious mist that contains horrible things that kills everyone. uh, She becomes the kind of de facto leader of this group of religious zealots within this small supermarket and becomes kind of a very dangerous thing because of her fanatical belief of which kind of infects other people or to go into the realm of um, television uh, the TV show Carnival was entirely built around the the fact that Clancy Brown played a priest who was kind of had these apocalyptic visions and was given this great power that he then exercised to gain himself to to gain uh, kind of influence and power for himself and setting up what would eventually have been kind of an apocalyptic an apocalyptic end game between him and uh, the guy from T3 whose name I don't remember um, the uh, guy Nick, John, Nick, Nick Stoll. Stoll yeah I see yeah yeah Nick Stoll uh, and, and that I think is the, the kind of the two modes in a lot of ways that's how uh, that's how they are depicted they are either complete lunatics who are going to be a danger to the the real kind of heroes or they're going to be people who are using religion to accrue power for themselves um some an example of this also would be someone like paul dano's character in there will be blood to reference it again mm-hmm. you know his character in the end is revealed to be a hypocrite who used his influence to get a lot of uh, money and wealth and power but when you even when you first meet him and see him in that you know when he does the i've abandoned my child scene uh you do kind of feel as if the film is leaning that way to say this guy's probably not on the up and up 
Mm. Yeah, is is the fact that the Christianity is the dominant kind of religion in America anyway, the fact that it's the most openly criticised? That probably is a big part of it. I think there is an element of punching up to it. Mm-hmm. Because, it's, like you say, it's the most dominant force. And I think that it's the one that a lot of people who work within the industry will have like a lot of familiarity with so they feel they can they have a a level of authority to to kind of comment on it and where they're not going to you know they'll get criticized by religious organizations but it's not going to kind of hurt their career uh, in general you know as opposed to if you were to and also it's unlikely to get you labeled with like accusations of anti-semitism if you made if you were a non-jewish person and you made a film that's very highly critical about judaism or uh, Islamophobia, if you made a film kind of highly critical about Muslims and things like that. So I think it it feels like the religion that is most safe for people to tackle. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And people kind of really have kind of laid into it, whilst Life of Brian uh, isn't specifically about Christianity, more a openly kind of, uh, kind of a vicious attack, I guess, on all organised religions. It's something that like really did open the floodgates for that kind of thing. It was kind of weird to think now that something like that now seems relatively tame, mm. um, but at the time it was you know hugely protested about, and not not just you know uh, Father Jack and Dougal with down with this sort of thing signs <laughs> outside a cinema. It was uh, banned in so many kind of places. Yeah, banned in Aberystwyth until about five years ago. Mm. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, my parents often have told me about ha- wanting to go and watch it at the cinema in Real in North Wales and having to literally fight their way through a picket. And Real's got nothing to be proud of, so I don't know why they would be. They would decide they were going to be the kind of the bastions of moral decency. Mm. But it, it does kind of seem, like you say, it seems very strange and tame now that a film which isn't really making fun of Jesus and is really just an excuse for a collection of lots of very silly jokes. <laughs> uh, would anger people and be banned in, you know, countries around the world, including I think, I think it was banned in Sweden. And so when it was advertised in Norway, the posters will say, "Watch the film that's been banned in Sweden." <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Like I can't think of too many things that would offend the Swedes. They're pretty open people. Yeah, maybe it was Norway that banned it. It was one of the two. I know that it was just it became the latest in their series of ways of just kind of antagonising each other over the many years that they've been uh, stuck next to each other. Mm, yeah. I suppose the kind of thinking about Christian cinema or religious films, I guess, and they kind of kind of seems like a, a bit of a dirty word, but like there's a huge kind of market for that kind of caper. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a uh, market that has existed for a very long time. You have things like the Left Behind films, which were kind of a big deal. Um several years ago i think i think the fact that uh, kirk cameron kind of started appearing in films like that was a real driving force because he was someone who people knew from a sitcom in the 80s and so suddenly you had a name attached as opposed to a lot of christian films which essentially star people who are you know basically no name actors not to kind of offend them in some way it's just that that's the way it ends, tends to be if you see a film that features a lot of people you've never heard of it's either a foreign language film or it's probably a christian film uh, it's kind of the way in which uh i kind of whenever i see a poster for a film on a marquee over here that's kind of the way i i think about it mm. um but i think that it is interesting the way in recent years there have been some crossover hits you have something like heaven is for real 
which always sounds a little threatening to me. <laughs> as if <laughs> yeah. to say, heaven doesn't take no shit. Mm. Um, or that, you know, the poster's just going to have heaven is real carved into Richie Edwards' arm. Mm. Um, but I think that... Uh, or you have something like God is Dead, which was a film that was kind of a huge hit by... Uh, by Christian film standards, which wasn't really a crossover hit so much as it was a film that man it, that big was uh, often described as kind of an email thread brought to life mm. because it it kind of hit all of these hot topic things amongst Christians about you know oh stories about uh, university professors saying oh this person said that they if they would fail the class unless they said that God is dead and stuff like that you know I think that. Uh, part of what I think has driven the rise in Christianity, in, in the rise in Christianity, is really mm. on the up and up. Yeah, it's um, so hot right now. <laughs> the thing that has really gr- driven the success of Christian film, I think, in the last decade or so, is that it has tapped into that evangelical fervor in that sense that they are a persecuted minority as opposed to you know the dominant religious organization in the country, and that's why you get films like that, which instead of opening in a few theaters and making like five million dollars will open in like a thousand theaters and make 50 million dollars mm. but also you're kind of forgetting the the biggest crossover hit of all time uh the passion of the christ mm. which uh until uh like two weeks ago was the most successful r-rated film ever which is insane mm. i mean what yeah. does that what does that say about that audience and what does it say about that film i think that film it's it's interesting in that it was there were a lot of factors driving it one the fact that it was obviously tailored towards a religious audience that i think at that point had been very underserved uh, they hadn't really had a big epic like that in like 50 years mm. you know there hadn't been a film of that scale and that told that story but then you also had the underlying controversy about the violence in it and the fact that it was a telling of that story that was far more brutal and difficult than previous one the fact that it was all in aramaic uh it was it seemed to have all these kind of bold choices and i think that the controversy of it really drew it to uh drove it in a lot of way and there developed a narrative around it that people had to see it in order to be good christians Mm. um as uh, embodied in, I believe, an episode of Kirby Enthusiasm. With the Christ uh, nail. Yeah, the Christ nail, where they're constantly talking about how he really has to go and see it, and Larry's not that fussed, surprisingly. Mm. Um, but I, I'd like, I think they're having also the fact that at that point, Mel Gibson was one of the biggest stars in the world. Mm. Uh, and I think seeing someone who only a few years ago had like been in stuff like What Women Want, which was like one of the, these kind of like massive hits, suddenly kind of throwing all of his clout behind this passion project uh, got a lot more attention than, you know, Kirk Cameron be appearing in Fireproof. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm still baffled by the success of Passion of the Christ on the basis that uh, I don't think I've ever met anyone who's seen it. <laughs> yeah, it's, a, it's definitely an American phenomenon as opposed to uh, a global one. Mm. Um, it's definitely something and but also it's a very limited one i feel as if it was probably a film that benefited from a lot of repeat viewings as opposed to having kind of like a big a big kind of uh crossover appeal where like people who 
were really excited about Spider-Man 2 that summer or so thought, hey, I'll also go and watch Passion of the Christ. Mm. There were probably people like that, but I think there was, uh, in general, it was probably more that the same core group of several million people just kept watching it every weekend until it racked up kind of insane numbers. Mm. Yeah, and they were insane numbers. Uh, like I say, I mean, adjusted for inflation probably gives uh, The Exorcist kind of a run for its money, I guess it might. Mm. Yeah, I think... It earned something like 370 million, which would be close to about five or 600 million now. Mm. So you are talking uh, Jurassic World and Avengers numbers. Yeah, it's funny that those two films are the the top R-rated films, The Exorcist and The Passion of the Christ, mm. uh, the two that, that kind of slug it out, the kind of both of uh, uh, differing views of, uh, <laughs> of religion, I guess. Yeah, cool, man. That's uh, that's religion for you. Let's do some recommendations. What have you got this week, Ed? I am going to recommend a TV show that was just recently renewed. We started with talk of a cancellation, so let's end with talk of a show that's coming back. I'm going to recommend the Fox sitcom The Last Man on Earth. Uh, you and I were both very excited when this show started two and a bit years ago mm-hmm. uh, because it was a, a Lord and Miller joint and it starred Will Forte, who we're both very fond of, and Kristen Schaal, who's obviously great in pretty much everything. Uh, but then we both were talking about this recently. We both fell off the show at more or less exactly the same point. Mm. We both thought that the pilot was one of the best things ever, but then the show kind of became a little bit repetitive and boring uh, and I decided after hearing good things about the second season that I would kind of power through the first season and catch up to date. And now that it's coming back for a third season, uh, I can say that I'm very excited about that because it has become in its second season an incredibly funny, but also incredibly sad and strange TV show, unlike anything that else that's really out there. And it, it does seem to have finally fulfilled the promise of its pilot, which is to be a show about... Uh, people genuinely forming human connections and trying to form a community after pretty much the entire world has ended, but really struggling with the fact that they're all kind of dicks to each other and they all get on each other's nerves. Mm. Uh, it's got one of the best ensemble casts on television and most recently offered a episode in which Jason Sudeikis was constantly harangued by Jason Tremblay as a hallucination, which uh, was, as, as someone who really loved Jacob Tremblay in Room, was an absolute delight for me. Mm. Yeah, I think that point of falling off the wagon was about five episodes in, yeah. um, where kind of I I was super psyched for it, and like say the 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 pilot is fun, and then I think after about three episodes, I was like, ah, uh, this doesn't seem like a fully fledged idea. Uh, this seems like a sketch that's kind of really run its course. But I'm pleased to to hear that it's kind of turned itself around, and that it's kind of good. I will definitely check out that second season. I'm going to pick a TV show too, but one that is uh, currently on the air that won't get a second season, I'm pretty sure. Um, I'm going to talk about The People vs. O.J. Simpson, mm. um, which uh, is kind of currently airing on uh, the BBC over here and I'm sure somewhere else uh, on American television. But yes, I have to say it is an incredibly trashy TV show, uh, but one that I am enjoying immensely. And I'm enjoying it for two reasons. One, uh, it's a very well made and kind of uh, very very kind of well put together piece of work uh, but two uh, I'm stunned at the uh, the fact that like a lot of people that I know are watching it who are considerably younger than I am don't know how it ends which wow. is fucking crazy like 
I mean, then, and then I kind of think, well, what kind of why would they? I mean, it was just, it's a it's a case that if you didn't kind of live through it and remember it, you know, you probably wouldn't have any relevance to you. Uh, it's not like O.J. Simpson is super famous uh, for anything other than killing someone. <laughs> but, you know, if you're not into American football or seen the Naked Gun movies, then, you know, he's not going to be a name you recognise. And, you know, like, people have come up to me and kind of said, oh, you're watching it, you're watching it. And I'm, I'm like, yeah, yeah, it's cool. It's, uh, it's a good show. And they're like... Um, so, I mean, I don't really know how the trial ends. Is is he in prison? I assume <laughs> I assume he's in prison now. And I'm like, well, yes, <laughs> he is in prison. But yeah, it's 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 kind of a fascinating thing to kind of um, uh, watch a dramatization of something that happened 20 years ago that I remember very vividly. But yeah, a whole generation of people. Um, this is just a TV show. Yeah, and you're right about it being trashy. I mean, there's there's obviously because of the now the ubiquity of the Kardashian family, that obviously is played up quite a bit. And sometimes uh, in ways that are quite kind of like genuinely touching. Like I do think that David Swimmer's performance is like, he does sell the, the the idea of a man who is genuinely uncertain, whether this man that he has kind of loved as a friend for 20 years is a brutal murderer. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also in other times, like when he's, having uh, dinner with his kids and he's talking about what Kardashians don't do. It's kind of like, eh, you're really winking at the audience a little too much here <laughs> about uh, the status of that, that family now. But I do think it, it's interesting because it's by the two guys who wrote Ed Wood. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting seeing there what they did with Ed Wood was they took camp and made it straight uh, and kind of took a guy who was responsible for all this campy work and and tried to kind of give him some emotional depth and now they, they've taken something that was an incredibly kind of emotionally brought moment in the kind of the big cult in, in kind of mass culture in america and reimagined it as camp to an extent but at the same time they do use it to comment on things that people are talking about now like you know race relations the kind of police brutality and things like that so it manages to straddle the two lines of being kind of of, of embodying the idea that in some way the O.J. Simpson trial created much of modern America in terms of mass media, in terms of reality television, in terms of the way in which people react to certainly the L.A. Police Department. But also you do have things like the scene in which Connie Britton uh, playing Faye Resnick kind of uh, dictates her uh, biography to kind of two ghostwriters and the camera's kind of swirling around and it's just this incredibly kind of vampy performance by her mm. uh, which is amazingly fun to watch but it also kind of feels really uh, really kind of at odds with other scenes where you have like parents breaking down over the death of their, their young daughter and things like that and you do kind of feel like it's a show that shouldn't work but somehow it, it does and it's really compelling mm-hmm. compelling is the words I would choose it's uh uh, it certainly is that. Um, well, that is your lot uh, on the subject of religion. Uh, thanks, as always, for listening. Uh, if you've enjoyed the show, please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Player FM. And if you've really enjoyed the show, please do leave us a little review. You can find us on Twitter. We're at SRS underscore podcast. And we're also on Facebook, too. Uh, we'll be back next week with something entirely different. But until then, it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. <laughs>